One Week Season. This is something that we've been talking about for, honestly, since last year, but we really started digging into this idea in maybe it was May of this year. Uh, Aaron and I on our on our weekly call, just talking about what we can do for subscribers and how we can maximize our training impact and, and maximize our delivery of all of this. So... First of all, super excited to be getting this first Inner Circle session underway. Super excited to see all of you in here. And obviously, all of this will be archived on the Inner Circle page. As always, feel free to reach out to us with any thoughts, suggestions, ideas. Uh, hit up Roto Maven. Hit up Dustin. That's D-W-P-R-I-X. Hit up Lex. Hit up Alec, that's Amund, A-M-U-N-D, 13. Uh, don't hit up me because I probably won't ever see it. But uh, with that, let's go ahead and get started. So a few things that I want to focus on tonight. And, and more broadly, the Tuesday night sessions are going to be focused primarily on strategy, as opposed to focused on the slate at hand, partly because we're, we're going to be recording on Tuesday nights. And so in my process, I am not yet into the deeper parts of that week's slate. And frankly, most of you aren't either and probably shouldn't be either, because there's an element at the front end of the week where if you just start diving into research early, you're just going to keep going through the same things over and over again as you get deeper into the week, which is why we've set up the site this year so that it's very focused on reflection content at the front end of the week. We'll have six or seven pieces of reflection content there. And then uh, the research content in the NFL Edge and roster construction in the scroll at the end of the week. Um, but also, as I kind of mentioned in the inner circle stuff, when we were launching this product, if you and I were doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, the first thing we would, we would focus on what we would spend half of our time doing would be having discussions more broadly about what DFS really is and how to, how to attack DFS from a mindset standpoint and a process standpoint in order to target those first place finishes. So that's kind of the focus of these Tuesday night sessions. And then on Saturday, we'll do the other thing that we would be doing if, if you and I were having coaching sessions, which is we would say, okay, let's take this week's slate and see what it looks like to build for a slate through the lens of building good DFS rosters. So that's where Hilo and Zanamir will be handling the Saturday sessions. Uh, I will be dropping in there from, from time to time and primarily asking questions, but also maybe occasionally answering questions as well. Uh, a note on that, asking questions. I learned so much from Xandamir, from Hilo, from Sonic, from Mike, from Blender, from other Sharp DFS players. And there's an element of understanding what works for your brain and what doesn't work for your brain, what types of contests you're playing and what types of contests the people talking are playing. And so you're not taking everything that somebody says and just saying, okay, so this is how this is done. Instead, you're saying, okay, here's another thing that works. This works for this person. Let me find out what from this will work for me. 
So this week, we're going to focus on a few core roster construction elements that I want to focus on. And then we are because it's week one and we have this extra scope of time to to focus on the slate. Uh, We're going to loop in some very specific week one examples. Uh, And then obviously we'll get to the Q&A at the end. So first thing I wanted to talk about, uh, a couple of years ago when I took down that Wildcat win, we had an opportunity after that for me to do a roster breakdown and to really talk about um, some components from it. And we'd been, I started playing the Wildcat, I think it was seven weeks before that. And so each week I was kind of walking through how I was putting together my rosters specifically in an effort to win that tournament. So it was kind of a cool opportunity to tie everything together where it was like, okay, here's what we are. Here's how I'm approaching this tournament. Here's how I'm trying to win it. Okay. Here's how I won it. Uh, Last year I took down the game changer on Thanksgiving day. And because it was Thanksgiving day, (laughs) there wasn't really an opportunity. In fact, that was, I was at, uh, some of you might recall, I was at my in-laws in Oklahoma that week and their internet wasn't working well. And so I had a hotel room that I was driving back and forth from to do all of my site work. And so there wasn't really an opportunity to ever kind of look at that roster and break it down. So there are a couple things I want to talk about from this roster. And this isn't a full roster breakdown, but there's a really cool element in that week 12 or week 13 win that I had that applies to the larger slates that were typically focused on the main slates. So the first thing I want to talk about is that it was a two-game slate. The Thursday night game that week got canceled because of COVID stuff. So there were two games on the slate. I won the game changer with a roster that scored 203 points. That should be eye-opening for us that there were two games to choose from and my roster put up 200 plus points now that isn't a result of me being such a good dfs player it just as easily could have been a week on which a two-game slate led to 130 point score winning that's a reflection of the types of games the way that those games played out So if you recall Thanksgiving last year, the Texans scored 41 points against the Lions. If you recall Thanksgiving last year, the Washington football team scored 41 points against the Cowboys. I was focused. Everyone was focused on the Cowboys offense. Everyone was focused on Ezekiel Elliott. So I played Antonio Gibson, not because I thought Antonio Gibson was so likely to have a better game than everyone else, but because it was a two game slate and therefore ownership is that much more heavily concentrated. And therefore it's that much more important to play that strategy game. So all I said was everyone's on Zeke. Sure. The matchup's tough against Washington. You could come up with all those reasons to not play him, but everyone's on Zeke for a reason. All I did was say, everyone's on Zeke. That means far fewer people are on Antonio Gibson. So let me play Antonio Gibson. Uh, Everyone was on, I think it was CeeDee Lamb and um, I'm sure to a lesser extent, Michael Gallup. And I played Amari Cooper. He was 26% owned when there's only two games on the slate. Um, 
everyone was on Logan Thomas. So I played whoever was the healthy Cowboys tight end at the time, I think Dalton Schultz. And so it was just saying, let me find a few places to differentiate. And then let me build around a scenario where the Texans smashed the Lions. Let me take Deshaun Watson, Will Fuller, Brandon Cooks, and then uh, for salary reasons, fit in Carrion Johnson as kind of my last piece on that roster. Two teams score 41 points. I bet on those two teams and my roster ends up scoring 203 points. I bring this up because there's a tendency when we get to the main slate to think so broadly and to think you need six plus nine players from six different games or nine players from seven different games and you feel like you're protecting yourself and you feel like you're covering all your bases but remember we just want a first place finish protecting ourselves isn't that important now this is interesting because we've talked for years about the fact that you can build floor and ceiling onto your tournament rosters but we've also talked for years about these bankroll building tournaments whether it's a single entry, three entry, five entry, maybe even 20 entry max uh, with 100 rosters that you have to beat, 500 rosters you have to beat, 5,000 rosters that you have to beat. But these tournaments where the the payout structure isn't so dramatically top heavy and where you're on a more level playing field in terms of how crazy somebody else's rosters are going to be. If everybody's only able to put in three rosters, you have fewer and fewer people putting in that third or fourth option on an offense. And when that third or fourth option on offense blows up, you know, if you're in the Millie maker and some random guy blows up, Michael Pruitt scores 25 points uh, because Jonu Smith gets hurt or whatever that scenario was last year where uh, Michael Pruitt on the Titans put up this monster score because Ferkser got hurt. And I think John was already out. Like if you're in the Millie maker, somebody's going to have that score. If you're in a tournament where <laughs> it's three entry max and a thousand rosters, you don't have to worry about somebody passing you with those scores. So think about what type of, tournament you're playing and the smaller the tournament field the less variance you have to absorb and the more willing you can be to build in floor and ceiling to where you can say look even if i don't get first place i'm still going to be cashing more often than the field as you get into these larger field tournaments you have to start saying okay look cashing like let's set that aside if i don't cash as often as the field that's okay as long as i'm getting more than 10% of my rosters over time in the top 10%. As long as I'm getting more than 5% of my rosters over time in the top 5% of the standings. As long as I'm getting more than 1% of my rosters over time in the top 1% of the standings. And one of the ways that we can do that is instead of spreading things out across a bunch of games, recognize that just betting on the two right games from a week, you can get 200 points out of that. Now, another thing to look at from that roster last year was I had three players who scored under 14 points. I had four players who scored under 17 points. So my other five players on my roster, defense included, averaged 30 points per player. So 
as you get into as you're in smaller field tournaments, this is why it can be so sharp to bet on a game environment in smaller field tournaments. It's what we talked about with the player blocks in 2018 when nobody except us was on Josh Allen and his scrub wide receivers. If you're in a smaller field tournament, you can say, I'm going to take Josh Allen, Isaiah McKenzie, and Zay Jones, or or Josh Allen, Duke Williams, and Zay Jones. And even if one of these guys duds, it doesn't matter. I'm spending 13K in salary and getting 50 to 65 points, 4X to 5X my, my salary from a huge chunk from over 25% of my salary. That's tremendous. That's going to keep you on that first place pace. Now, as you get into larger field tournaments, taking those duds isn't as acceptable. So bringing this over to the example of of betting on two games, you could take two games on a 13-game slate. You could take two games and say, I'm going to totally bet on these two games in a small field tournament because I'm pretty confident that the chances of these two games shooting out are higher than anything else. And if everything comes together, it's not improbable that you get 200 plus points. And again, it's okay to take some duds along the way. As you get over into large field play, where you're needing to be 25,000 rosters, 50,000 rosters, I think the slant is, uh, uh, most weeks it's 50,000 rosters. And the slant is one of the tournaments that a lot of OWS members are focused on. So once you get into those types of tournaments, that's where you can say, okay, I'm going to bet on these two games. But rather than taking eight players from these two games, I am going to take five players on this roster, five players on this roster, five players on this roster, and do this across 20 rosters and mix and match these games in different ways. And so now you end up with that situation where, like, I I mentioned Deshaun Watson, Will Fuller, and Brandon Cooks. So Will Fuller and Deshaun Watson combined for over 70 points because they both put up over 35 Brandon Cooks added 13 points to that roster. So as a roster block, I still got about 90 points from these three guys. I still averaged 30 points per player. In a smaller field tournament, 10,000 entries or below, I don't even care that Brandon Cooks got 13 and that I, quote, could have done better there because I just bet on this offense and took all the points. As you get into these larger field tournaments, that's where you say, okay, this roster is going to have Deshaun Watson and Will Fuller. This roster is going to have Deshaun Watson and Brandon Cooks. I'll build five rosters with Watson and Fuller, five rosters with Watson and Cooks. And basically you can play the different combinations of things so that then you get the five players who averaged 30 points per player. You get those 150 points and you still have four roster spots left that you can pull in guys from other games who also might be exploding. So as you get into larger and larger fields, you need to take on a little bit more risk. And that's what we mean by embracing variance, by embracing uncertainty, is that as you're trying to beat 50,000 rosters or 200,000 rosters, you have to be a little bit more willing to say, okay, this is, I don't, I don't know if I'm picking the right player from this offense, from this combo, but let me build some with this guy. Let me build some with this guy. And on one of these sets of rosters, things are going to come together for a huge score. Uh, but again, bringing things back to what we're primarily focused on a lot of the time, roster building contests, you can bet around a much smaller number of games than most people typically do and get these 200 plus point scores. And it's crazy when you think about how often people say, oh, I've never scored 200 points on DraftKings. And then to think that you can just build around two games because you're forced to build around two games. 
and you can lock in 200 plus points with, you know, four relatively disappointing scores on that roster to go with it. Uh, and some players that you would never want to have wanted to, like I, I didn't want to play Dalton Schultz. I played Dalton Schultz that week because everyone was on Logan Thomas. And so it was like, well, let me see if I can do something a little bit different here, right? Like everybody's betting on Zeke and Logan Thomas. So let me bet on Antonio Gibson and Dalton Schultz. If we'd had nine games, 10 games to choose from, I'm doing something different at tight end. I wasn't playing carry on Johnson because I wanted to I was play him because there's two games. So you see how the doors start getting opened up to these huge scores when you start looking for games that you can bet on and start being willing to embrace that. If the game ends, if the team ends up scoring 20 points and you were totally wrong, that's fine. Because as you keep doing that, as you keep identifying the types of games that have that shootout potential or that that one team scores a ton of points potential, that's where you start finding like, okay, maybe it's a loss, a loss, a loss, a loss. But then you have this huge weekend that makes up for, you know, what could be five years worth of losses, what could be 10 years worth of losses, because you get that first place finish. And that's what we're hunting for. And that what that's what makes our season or several seasons for us. Another thing that we want to focus on tonight, and we're doing good on pace here to get to questions, is I talked in this morning's angles email about trying to get these 25 plus point scores or from high priced guys trying to get these monster scores. So understand that there's a sliding scale here. You don't need your 9k player to be able to get you 5x if they do great in fact if they can't if there's no reasonable way for them to get you 5x you probably don't want them because you're still needing to be on that 250 point pace especially on a week like this where there's looser salary but as you get to the higher prices raw score matters more than salary projection and as you get to the lower price range, that salary multiplier can matter more, but you need that higher salary multiplier. You Getting 4X from a 3K guy isn't going to win you a tournament. Getting 12 points isn't going to win you a tournament. And I talked about this in the roster construction course, but just like a little side trail here. Tight end. It's so common to say, okay, well, the tight end position sucks, so I'm going to spend 2600 on this guy who's on the field and hope he catches a touchdown. But if you dig in a little bit more deeply into the thinking there, you might find that him scoring a touchdown is going to be required for him to just get that 4x salary multiplier. In other words, his best case scenario is still kind of hurting your roster. Be willing, like, look, there's a lot of uncertainty at tight end, but be willing to say, look, this 2,600 guy, sure, he can get me 10 points if everything goes just right. But if I get up into this 3,400 range, there are guys who they could get me, I can come up with a case for them getting me 17, 20. That doesn't mean that they're any more likely to get you 17 to 20 than the other guy is to get you 10. But raw points matter and getting higher salary multipliers on these cheaper guys matters. So keep that in mind. There's like a sliding scale in all of this when we're talking about salary multipliers. And some people say 3x plus seven. So in other words, a 3k guy, 3x would be nine points plus seven would be 16. That's your target score. Realistically, there's not 
there's not like a firm thing you need to be looking at. And that's one of the things we want to get in your mind is it's not about, it's not about having the exact right setup and like, okay, as long as this guy gets me to 16 points, what we're really looking at is how do we get a sense of the type of upside that a player has? And how do we make sure that we're building that type of upside onto our roster? So on these cheaper guys, 5x, 6x salary multipliers. If you can find guys who can do that, you're in much better shape than if you're taking guys whose best case scenario is that 4x salary multiplier. High-end guys, yeah, you'd love for them to get 5x their 9k price tag. And you have players like Dalvin, players like Christian McCaffrey, players like Devontae Adams, who can. Side note on that, If you're choosing between Devontae Adams and DeAndre Hopkins, especially on a week where ownership is similarly projected, and you understand the way that DeAndre Hopkins is used in this Arizona offense to where his high-end game is 30 points and Devontae Adams' high-end game is 40 points, it's crazy to think that those guys can come in similarly owned and yet that happens. Price tags are the same. People think of these guys as being equally good players, but you have to think about like, what is their ultimate ceiling? All that said, them hitting that 5X is going to be a very low likelihood scenario. Even them hitting 4X might not happen as often as these cheaper guys hitting 4X. So at that point, raw points is just as valuable to be paying attention to. So how do we find these types of players? How do we find these types of scores? So I want to talk about two key ways that are free and extremely easy and extraordinarily overlooked. So one is in week one in particular, you can do this. If you go into the DraftKings app or into the DraftKings website, you see that each player's name is clickable. So you're building a roster. There's DeAndre Hopkins. His name's clickable. You click his name and it brings up his game logs. If we're in week two, it's going to bring up his game logs from this year, which will just be one game. If we're in week five, it's going to bring up his game logs from this year, which is just four games. But right now in week one, it shows all of their game logs from last year. There is an element of, and I talk about accumulated knowledge over time, and I talk about that a lot. And there's this thing of like, know what these players can provide and do provide. And one of the best ways to do that is to just visually see, oh, this is what DeAndre Hopkins typically gets me. This is what Devontae Adams typically gets me. So by Taking that time to just look through the DraftKings app, to just look through players and click on them. And I'm actually pulling this up right now. So if we click on Devontae Adams, game log, we've got scores of 21, 21, 16, 46, 11, 27, 37, 18, 26, 19. Now I'm just saying these numbers out loud. Register that there's been one game below 16 points. There have been two games below 18 points. There's been four games below 20 points. So that consistency, you can just flip through his game logs and see, okay, this guy, even when he disappoints, he regularly gets 20 plus points. Oh, look, here's a 47 point game. Here's a 30 point game. Here's a 36 point game. Take his salary and say, what's 4X 
his salary at 8.3K. That's about 33 points. So these 47-point games, these 36-point games, 37 again, 46, you recognize, hey, here's a guy. Now, this is there's other elements to think about here, right? The strategy, how highly owned this guy is, what the matchup is, all of that, right? But understanding what types of games this guy is capable of producing and what he does when he disappoints. If we flip over to DeAndre Hopkins from last year, and again, these guys 7,800 and 8,300, and we regularly see them owned at a similar level. Well, DeAndre Hopkins' best game last year is 34 points. We just had two 45-plus-point games on Devontae Adams' game logs. He has one other game over 30 points. He has a game in here of 11, a game of 9, a game of 6, back-to-back games of 10. So understanding what you're actually rostering from a floor and ceiling standpoint, what this player's range is, is so valuable. And so maybe your brain works differently than mine. Maybe for you, you can go and look at the projection system and you do it every week and you get this accumulated knowledge over time of, okay, you know, GPP ceiling tool. And by the way, people talk about the blitz and how great the blitz is. I want to remind you, we've mentioned this before, but it's the same team that powers the blitz is the team that powers the GPP ceiling tool. The GPP ceiling tool is an incredible tool for getting a sense of a player's range of scoring outcomes. So if you can look and say, either whether looking at projection systems week in and week out saying, okay, this is this player's range or week one, flip through everybody's game logs and just start to get a sense of what these players score. Now, for me, I've been doing this since 2014 and regularly looking at game logs. I'm looking at uh, Hilo's face right below me in the audience uh, where it shows who's listening right now. And I'm sure that Hilo has looked at these game logs often enough that he could say offhand what a player's typical range is. So for me, that helps me when people are saying, okay, Devontae Adams or DeAndre Hopkins in this spot, uh, William's wanting to get in on the pod as well. Uh, when people are saying Devontae Adams or DeAndre Hopkins in this spot, it's easy for me to say, well, I don't even have to look at, at much information. You tell me they're owned similarly? Well, Devontae Adams. Even if they're not owned similarly, why do I want to pay up for a guy whose high end has proved to be 4x his salary in this offense and whose low end is like 1x his salary? So flip through game logs and consistently do that throughout the season to start to get a sense of what a player's actual range is. The next thing is to describe for yourself how a player got the score that you want him to get. So you take this 4K wide receiver, instead of saying, oh, I think he's going to have a good game. What's a good game? Okay, you need him to get optimally like 20 points, you need to at least be able to to describe how he can get to 20 points. And as you start studying first place rosters more and more often, or rosters that are finishing in the top 1% of tournaments more and more often, you'll find that they're getting 30, 35 point games from like a cheap player. That's important to have that upside. Not that you're always going to get it, but not all of your expensive guys are going to hit the way you want them to hit or expect them to hit. So your cheap guys need to have that sort of upside to get to 30 plus points. So now you're looking at a 4K wide receiver and you're saying, okay, I want him to get me at least 20 and I want him to, in an outlier scenario, be able to get me 30 points. We all know how scoring breaks down. You get a point for every 10 yards, a point for every catch. You get the three point bonus for hundred yards. You get six points for a touchdown. So start describing what things look like when this guy is getting you 30 
points. Is he scoring two touchdowns? Is he getting six catches for 100 yards? Now you add in the bonus and you get two touchdowns. He's up to 31 points. Like, is this guy capable of doing that? How far of an outlier is that type of output? And I think that that's something a lot of people miss. We're wanting to, I talk about this a lot, but we're wanting to demystify the slate for ourselves as much as we can. And so if we're able to say, not just, oh, I think this guy will get me a good score, but instead say, what is a good score? Well, what do I need from this player? And then how is this player getting that score? And then by now, you guys should know what the next step is here. If you're describing a scenario in which this wide receiver gets you 30 points, that's not just saying, oh, these are the stats he would have. He got six catches for 100 yards and two touchdowns. What type of game produced that type of score? So now, instead of just saying, okay, in a vacuum, yes, I like this guy. He's cheap. He's a good value. And I can I can calculate, yeah, it's reasonable for this, this guy to get six for 102 touchdowns. Like, we know that's outlier. We know that's going to happen maybe five times out of every 100 games. But yeah, I can, I can describe that. Okay, but what game environment led to that? Why are they, let's say it's a downfield threat. Why are they attacking downfield so much that this downfield threat ends up with six catches? Why are they attacking downfield so much that this guy is getting two long touchdowns? What does that do to the rest of the game? What is the opponent doing based on you doing this? And this is where you start to recognize the flaws in everyone else's thinkings where it's like, okay, how do I fit the players I want onto this roster with my salary constraints? And let me make sure I have good players across the board. And instead we start settling down a little bit more and saying, okay, maybe I don't need a bet on seven games. Maybe I don't need to move on from this game so quickly. There's a tendency and part of this tendency, and I, and I was part of this too, because that Friday night show was kind of a, a catalyst for my space in the industry. But that Friday night show with myself and Hefe and Levitan, that was a pause for me to close the door. Uh, that Friday night show was a relatively popular show on Roto Grinders. And we were primarily focused on who the good plays were because that's Levitan's thing. Levitan's a master of cash games. He's a master of getting down to the best plays on the slate. But Levitan, from his brilliant marketing and, and brand management of himself uh, and his excellence of like providing good information on Twitter, he has become such a huge person in the DFS space that his thoughts, his words sort of echo throughout the industry. I've talked before about a lot of DFS content providers, they're playing other sports all the time. They don't have probably even as much in-depth knowledge of the NFL as you have. So a lot of times they're relying on the other people they read oftentimes Levitan and Silva, for their understanding of how to approach things. Well, without necessarily recognizing that Levitan's focused on finding the most optimal plays on the slate, and then these get echoed by everyone. And so everyone perceives this play who's maybe you know 5% more likely to go off than this other play. Everyone perceives them as this must play in tournaments and starts trying to piece together these just good rosters with a bunch of good players on them. And so when you can stop and say, okay, that's not the type of thinking I want to apply to tournaments. It's not about how can I spread out my risk as much as possible. Instead, it's saying, how do I concentrate my risk so that I'm also concentrating my upside? So now you find this guy, this cheap guy, and, and maybe you're having a hard time describing how he gets to 30 points. So then you say, 
okay, is there anybody else in this range who I can describe how they get to 30 points? You find that guy and then you say, all right, let me not move on from this game just yet. Let me describe the game scenario that produced this guy getting 30 points. Or if this guy's the driver of that game scenario, in other words, he hits the big play and this team's taking a lead. Keep in mind that we have coaches, real life humans on the sideline making decisions. And there's that pressure of once the other team starts scoring quickly, once one team starts scoring quickly, the other team starts opening things up a little bit more. And that can lead to this back and forth. And so then you're thinking, okay, well, this guy got this long touchdown two long touchdowns, and maybe they take a 14-point lead, and this other team has this downfield threat. Hey, he's also going overlooked, and we put him on this roster. And so we start finding that we settle down with this one game a little bit more and build around a very clear scenario that, yes, we're concentrating on risk, but we're also concentrating our reward. If this one scenario pays off, we are getting three, four spots right on our roster. And in this situation that we're describing, we're getting three or four spots right that pretty much nobody else is getting right even on individual players. So let alone when we package them together. And then that's where we can say, like, there's all this talk about cumulative ownership and 125% or what your projected ownership adds up to. But that's really just, that's a top level way to understand what we're really getting at, which is the fact that you need something that differentiates your roster. As soon as you've taken this game stack that we've just described with these two cheaper wide receivers betting on a shootout in this spot, you can pretty much do whatever you want on the other six spots on your roster, right? You've got these two wide receivers, a quarterback from this game, and then you can say, okay, I can I can bet on the most popular plays or whoever I like the most everywhere else because these look, these guys are popular for a reason. They're good plays. And my roster is already differentiated enough from this swing I'm taking in this one spot with these downfield threats and hoping that they hit for these huge games. And so understanding how to pull all of that together is where we start to really gain our significant edge on the field. So I'm going to talk about an example from week one, and then I'm going to get to some questions that Aaron sent me from uh, that you guys dropped in throughout the day. Then we'll open up the mic for 15, 20 minutes. We'll see how much time uh, we're able to pull here before the kids on my end uh, get a little bit too rowdy. So week one example, I'm going to take this Bengals Vikings game. And this isn't necessarily how I'm playing anything this week, although this is certainly in my mind. It's also Tuesday. So I'm going to play around with a lot of different roster combinations, a lot of different ideas throughout the week. But this is a great example of what this can look like. And I alluded to some of this in the NFL Edge, but I want to really dive in more deeply to how this actually looks in action. So we are going to assume some ownership numbers here just for the sake of example. In other words, this is not necessarily where these players are being projected or will be projected by the end of the week, but just to understand how this can work. So let's take a top-down look at this Bengals-Vikings game. Okay, the Bengals have a bad defense. The Vikings have a concentrated offense. The Vikings like to run the ball. And we know from past experience that if the Vikings are controlling a game, they're very willing to only throw the ball 10 times, 12 times, 15 times, 18 times. So we're going to say, let's put Dalvin Cook 
onto this roster. Let's say that the Vikings smash. Now, as we talked about in the NFL edge, because this Vikings offense is so concentrated, you ignore them at your risk. It's like the example that Hilo and Zandamir and I have all independently used this year in our roster construction courses and in other articles with the Titans saying I'm fading Derrick Henry at 40% ownership is not really the right way to think. Just fading Derrick Henry at 40% ownership leaves a lot to be desired because this is a very concentrated Titans offense. It's not like the Bucks where it's like, okay, if Antonio Brown fails, maybe Mike Evans succeeds, or maybe Chris Godwin succeeds, or maybe Gronk succeeds, or maybe OJ Howard succeeds, or maybe one of these three running backs succeeds, or maybe the Bucks put up 35 points and spread the ball out to so many guys that no, none of them are on a tournament winning roster. Not to say that they all disappoint, but to say none of them are had to have it guys. The Titans, on the other hand, if Derrick Henry's 40% owned, there's a pretty good chance that means that Derrick Henry's in a really good spot. There's a pretty good chance that means the Titans are scoring a lot of points that week, unless things just totally fall apart. So if you're fading Derrick Henry and you don't play another Titans player, you're basically inadvertently betting that the Titans are just going to disappoint that week. Well, if Derrick Henry's 40% owned, there's probably a pretty low likelihood that it's a spot where the Titans are just going to disappoint. So the sharper way to play that is to say, okay, I'm going to bet that the touchdowns come through the passing attack instead of through Derrick Henry. It's a concentrated offense. You know where the touchdowns are going if they're not going through Derrick Henry. So if you're going to say Derrick Henry's 40% owned, this is a great spot for the Titans. They're going to be scoring points. So if Derrick Henry fails, we're pulling this lever down, it pulls this other lever up, and we're able to say, okay, Derrick Henry fails, that pushes up one of the pass catchers. So you ignore spots like that to your detriment. Moving over to the Vikings, again, concentrated offense. So Dalvin Cook is going to be popular. He's got a great matchup. We know his role is secure. Now, he's 9K. Pricing comes into this as well, right? Because if Dalvin Cook scores 25 points and you don't have him, that's not going to kill you. But we have to at least consider one of these concentrated offenses in a good spot. So in this example, we're going to say Dalvin Cook is 30% owned. And we really like him. And we know that it's okay to play some high-owned players. In fact, we have to play some high-owned players because DFS is efficient enough that a lot of the high-owned players, most of the high-owned players are good plays, right? Again, we, we talked about Levitan sort of driving public sentiment. Well, Levitan's super sharp. He's going to know who the sharpest plays are on the slate from a standpoint of, hey, this guy's 5% more likely to beat to outscore this guy, right? So if a guy's super highly owned, maybe he's not as high owned as he, maybe he's higher owned than he should be, but he's still a sharp play. So more than likely, some of these high owned plays every week are going to have big games. So in this in this scenario, we're going to say, all right, I'll settle down with Dalvin Cook. I'm happy playing Dalvin Cook at 30% ownership. He can smash the Bengals. But now we've got this 30% owned player. How do we make Dalvin Cook lower owned? How do we offset the fact that Dalvin Cook is 30% owned and we have him on our rosters? And if he gets his 30-point game, that really doesn't help us that much going to finish in the top 20% just to make any money. So if you've got a guy who has a solid game at 30% ownership, you're not even putting yourself in the money yet. Well, let's look at the other side of this game. 
Are we saying Dalvin Cook smashes and the Bengals do absolutely nothing all game? They just they just fail all game. And I'll have a, a actually I'll, I'll go to this thought right now. When other people are thinking, when when your tendency, we'll say it like this, when your tendency is to think negatively about a spot, that probably means that other people are also thinking negatively about that spot. Flip the switch. Say, okay, what's the positive case? to be made here. Uh, Hilo did this in one of his articles in Classroom talking about Mike Davis. Mike Davis is getting drafted at the end of the fifth round, early sixth round, even though on paper, he is the only running back on a high-powered offense with a coach who's comfortable using one running back all the time. But because everyone's like, well, yeah, and, and I was having the same thought myself in best ball drafting. I had like two Mike Davis rosters before I read Hilo's article. Because you're just saying, yeah, like, He's 28 years old. He's a journeyman. Like he wore down toward the end of last year. Uh, you know, the Falcons weren't really able to support running backs in the past. So I'm not, I'll just won't bother with him. But that has led to him being drafted where he's being drafted, where if he actually pays off his role, he's a second or third round pick. Like if he's actually an 80% running back and involved in the pass game and plays all season, he's going to perform like a second or third round running back. And so the 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 uh, Bengals, it's easy to say, well, uh, Joe Burrow is coming back from the ACL and, you know, he was having trouble in camp like a month ago with, you know, condensed pockets around him. And Jamar Chase has had these issues with the drops. So I'll, I'll just skip this offense. That's fine if you want to do that. But before you move on, you have to challenge yourself. You have to say, okay, that's the negative case. What's the positive case? Positive case is the Bengals are one of the pass heaviest offenses in the NFL. The positive case is Jamar Chase is potentially the best wide receiver prospect to come out since Calvin Johnson, potentially. The positive case is if you're Zach Taylor, what are you going to do? Not throw to Jamar Chase in his first game after he's been dropping the ball all the time or say, hey, let's get this guy going. Like, let's get his confidence up. Let's target him early and often and get, get the ball in his hands. Right. So now all of a sudden you're thinking about the positive case and you're saying, okay, well, certainly if if Dalvin Cook is smashing, absolutely smashing, we're assuming a setup where the Vikings are throwing less. The Vikings are in a lead because when their games are close or especially when they're in the lead, they're going to lean on the run. And that's that's when we're going to get these tournament winning games from Dalvin Cook. These had to have it games from Dalvin Cook. And that means. The Bengals, every time they have the ball, they're having to pass more and more and more. They're already a team that wants to pass. And so in this scenario, let's say Jamar Chase is projected at 5% owned. Well, now we have a very clear scenario that by playing Dalvin Cook, by saying that Dalvin Cook, and again, you'll hear me say this all the time, all year, as soon as you put a player on your roster for tournaments, you're saying this guy is going to have a tournament winning score. At least on that roster, you're betting on that. So now that you bet that Dalvin Cook has a tournament winning score, you're betting, recognize this, you're betting that the Vikings are playing with a lead and that the Bengals are having to pass more and more and more. So now you can add, instead of just saying Dalvin Cook in a vacuum, you can say, yeah, Dalvin Cook's 30% owned, but I can lower my Dalvin Cook ownership by taking Jamar Chase on the other side of this game, who's going to be 5% owned. So now only 5% of rosters have Jamar Chase. And then you could say, how many of these Jamar Chase rosters have Dalvin Cook as well? Let's say it's a 10,000 
the field of 10,000 rosters. So 5% owned, 500 rosters have Jamar Chase. Okay, so what, 150 of them have Jamar Chase plus Dalvin Cook, 1.5% of the field? So now you've been on a specific game scenario. Instead of just saying, I like Dalvin Cook, you say, okay, yeah, but I like Dalvin Cook how much? I like him enough to put him on a tournament roster? I like him enough to say that he's going to be one of the reasons why I win a tournament. I like him enough to say he's not just getting me 22 to 25 points. He's getting me like 35 to 40 points. Okay, so what does that mean for this game? What is that bet actually saying? That bet's actually saying the Vikings take off in this one. So now let me add a pass catcher from the other side because now this combination is much lower owned. And everybody else is 30% of the field is getting their Dalvin Cook points, but you're getting your Dalvin Cook points plus the points from the other side of this game that those Dalvin Cook points are helping to produce, getting two spots right at once. Now, if you're building three entry max, you can also say, yeah, I want to make sure I focus on the Vikings on every roster. I want to make sure I get at least one Vikings piece on every roster. But I'm not really sure how this game's going to play out. I can also build a scenario in which the Bengals keep pace and maybe even take a lead. The Bengals could take a lead in this game, right? They've got the pieces. They have the offense to do it as far as the talent and the pieces in place. And even the scheme, as Hilo noted in his write-up for this game, the Vikings have new pieces in. This can lead to miscommunication early in the season, or I guess it was Mike Mike Johnson brought this up in his, he wrote up the game. Uh, we've seen it in the past with the Vikings. Two years ago, I think it was, the Vikings started off awful. And at that point, we were used to them being a great defense. And everyone was attacking the Vikings, but nobody really knew why. And, and, we started digging in on OWS and recognizing, oh, the, like the Vikings don't have a talent issue. They have a communication issue. And for about two or three weeks, their defense was super attackable. And then they tightened up because the communication on the back end got worked out. So it's easy to say, okay, new players here in Zimmer's scheme, communication issues, the Bengals take a lead. Well, what does that mean for the game? Well, now that means the Vikings are passing. So now we're turning over to Thielen or Jefferson. But that also means that the Vikings are getting Mixon more and more involved. So now we say, okay, here's one roster that says Dalvin plus Jamar Chase. Here's another roster that says Thielen or Jefferson plus Mixon. And what's cool here is it doesn't mean that because one of these rosters succeeds, the other one is dead. It just means if one of these rosters is actually pushing you toward a first place turning finish, the other one, you need to make up for what happened to Dalvin on this roster, right? Like maybe Dalvin only gets you 22 to 25. And so that's not what you needed as salary. That's fine. You're still trying to make up for that in other spots. You're still targeting cheap guys who have potential for 30 plus points. So now we've got one roster that says Dalvin plus Jamar Chase. Jamar Chase, instead of having just Dalvin at 30% ownership, we have this pairing that we've said is 1.5% owned. On another roster, we've got Mixon plus Vikings pass catcher to bet on a different way that this game could play out. And then we can take a third roster and say, okay, on this third roster, I will bet that the Vikings just smash the Bengals. I will take Dalvin Cook solo. I know that if Dalvin Cook's getting me a tournament winning game, 35 to 40 points, the Vikings are smashing to such an extent that I don't want Thielen or Jefferson on here. And I'm creating a scenario where the Bengals just get waylaid and they don't do anything. So it's just Dalvin Cook. But now I've got this 30% owned player on my roster. Is there any way that I can offset that? Well, let's say that Christian McCaffrey is also 30% owned, but how many people are going to have Christian McCaffrey and Dalvin Cook together? So now you get Christian McCaffrey and Dalvin Cook 
and maybe a two or three percent combo. There's enough, there's enough value in week one that you can justify doing that in a tournament. And if both of these guys hit their high-end score, if both these guys score 40 to 45, we've seen McCaffrey score 50 multiple times. If if that happens, now you've got 90 points from two players. And it's two players who are a lot of people have them, but not a lot of people have both of them. And that allows you to, you know, your saving salary in other places. You can find guys who you can create a case for 30 points in week one who are cheaper because there's so much, you know, mispricing in week one. And so that's how we can kind of take one of these games where instead of saying, oh, I like this offense, we can say, how do we build around this offense and how do we take our high owned pieces and sort of offset that ownership by doing some things in different ways? So we are going to leave the discussion there for now we are and and aaron go ahead and stop me if there's anything that i should do differently here but i am going to dive into these questions that came in throughout the day uh you guys know how i can be with questions going in depth on them we've got eight questions here and i want to try to hit all of them in the next 20 minutes which will give us 20 to 30 minutes for uh kind of opening up the mic and chatting with you guys a little bit letting you guys ask questions directly so Hilo, uh, some guy named Hilo asked, when planning for early season DFS, is it enough to stick to good plays and allow the field to make mistakes? Or should we be accepting a little additional variance on the unknowns, specifically in regards to pricing discrepancies? So, okay. The smaller the tournament field you're playing in, and I know that Hilo knows this answer, but the smaller the tournament field you're playing in, the less variance you have to be willing to embrace. You can say that in week one, like in any week, people are going to take bad plays. And that's one of the things that we want to drill into you is like being contrarian doesn't mean taking bad plays. A lot of people who are trying to be better at DFS actually end up being worse because they're taking bad plays to be different. Like in every spot, they're taking a lesser play than what the field is taking in order to be different. We want to be focused on good plays. The smaller the tournament field you're dealing with, the more opportunity there there is for you to get to first place just by taking putting together a really sharp roster. But as always, it should still be a roster that's constructed in such a way that you say, all right, if I'm putting this guy on my roster, what does that mean elsewhere in his game? doesn't mean that every time you put a player on your roster, you do end up taking another player from that game. But it means that you settle down a little bit longer on each game. As you get into larger and larger fields and have to beat more and more people, you need to be willing to embrace more and more uncertainty with upside in mind. So in other words, again, another thing I talked about in the roster construction course was that 4K to 5K range of wide receivers on DraftKings. Now, those are almost always going to be either possession receivers who get a lot of short area targets, in other words, guys who have a high floor, or downfield receivers who get fewer targets are likelier to post a dud, but when they hit, they can hit big. So if you're playing in the Millie Maker or the Slant, you shouldn't be taking the $4,500 wide receiver whose best case scenario is seven catches for 80 yards. You should be taking the guy who, yeah, he could get me one catch for 13 yards. 
but he also could get me four catches for 130 yards and a touchdown. And so as you get into those larger field tournaments, you get more and more willing to just embrace those players with a wider range of distribution in their scoring potential. The guys who could get you a bottomed out score or who could win you the tournament. And so uh, that is something that another thing we'll keep hammering this year is like, there's not a lot of opportunity for nuance when we talk about players and games throughout the NFL week. It's enough to try to get to all the games and to drill down into all the games. So it doesn't allow us to take each individual player and say, okay, this guy's better suited for this type of tournament, for this type of tournament, this type of tournament. So you need to be able to understand like, what are you building toward and what types of rosters are required for that type of tournament? Question from True Dawn. How much are you willing to assume a player block early in the season? For example, I see Elijah Moore and Corey Davis as the Jets' best receiving options by quite a bit, but we can't know for sure. Would a block of them stacked with Zach Wilson and Christian McCaffrey be a solid base for a three-max roster, or is that too much risk? So, Corey Davis is 4,900. Elijah Moore is 3K, and I believe Zach Wilson's 5K. I won't, I won't double check that, but so that gives us about 13K in salary. So the best way to handle something like this, as always, is to demystify it for ourselves a little bit. 13K in salary means that now we're talking about week one. So we need the type of score when it's a week one tournament when there's a lot more value. And there, there's some week ones where 205 points gets you first place because all the chalk fails or whatever happens. But you have to assume going into week one that people are going to get some monster scores. So let's say 13K in salary. First off, if you get 4X with 13K in salary, you're, you're not killing your roster. You're in good shape. But we want to target 5X in salary. We want to target over 5X in salary. So that's 65 points. So the next step is you just describe how these guys would get to 65 points. Now, we're putting Zach Wilson onto a roster. So we're saying that Zach Wilson is, you know, he's 5K. He doesn't have to have a, a Lamar Jackson high-end game, a Kyler Murray high-end game. But we're saying that, that Zach Wilson can get us to first place. So let's give him 30 rushing yards. Let's give him three passing touchdowns. We're up to 15 points. Let's give him... 250 passing yards or up to 25 points. So now we've got 250 passing yards. We'll say, uh, and again, read the NFL Edge to understand pace of play, to understand run pass expectations. But let's say he throws about 35 passes. He completes about 22. The more time we spend in box scores, the more time we spend looking at game logs, the more we start to understand things like this. But let's say that that eight or nine passes, let's say 12 passes get distributed because Crowder's going to be out there. I think he's going to be off the COVID list by then. So Crowder is out there. We've got the tight end. We've got the running backs. So let's say that there's 12 catches go to these guys. So now we've got uh, 11, 10, 11, 12 receptions left for Corey Davis and Elijah Moore. 
So 10, 11 catches, there's another 10, 11, 12 points right there. Let's say that these guys get at least two of the three touchdowns, optimally three of the three touchdowns. But if we say two of the, two of the three touchdowns, that's another 12 points there. So now we're up to about 47 to 50 points. And then you say, could these guys combine for 150 yards? Yeah, absolutely. So you want to, instead of just saying, is this a good combo? Is this a good setup? Does this work? Well, take a moment. Say, does it work? Can this realistically happen? How broad is this team's likely distribution of targets? And I'll tell you on the Jets, it's not that broad from what we can see right now. We could be proven wrong, but right now, it's reasonable to think that Elijah Moore and Corey Davis, especially uh, if you paid attention throughout Jets camp, Elijah Moore, all the reports were just, he was unstoppable. It's against the Jets defense, but all the reports were that he was unstoppable. And Corey Davis, all the reports were that Corey Davis was Zach Wilson's number one like undeniably that was who Zach Wilson was looking toward that Corey Davis was being treated as an alpha. So if we can say, okay, it's reasonable to say 10 catches, 12 catches for 150 yards and two touchdowns for these two guys. You don't even have to say which of these two guys, and this is what we're getting at with smaller fields, just taking a player block. Now, if you're getting a larger field, sure. Some rosters with all three, some rosters with just Wilson and Corey Davis, some rosters with just Wilson and Elijah Moore. And, but in these smaller field tournaments, just this three player roster block and just taking this chunk of points is fine. Even if one of them gets 25 points and one of them gets 10, that's fine. In fact, as long as these, like if, if Corey Davis was going to be 25% owned, this roster block no longer works because if Corey Davis is the one who gets you 25 points and Elijah Moore gets you 10, you're actually hurting yourself even in small field tournaments by having that 10 point score. But as long as it's not a group of popular players, it really doesn't matter which one hits and which one gets the dud. It just matters that, or which one disappoints. It just matters that you get all these players together. You get those points. So I think that that's a very reasonable setup to describe. It's also important to understand what could go wrong here? Okay, Jamison Crowder could get the points. We know that the Jets want to be run-based. That could happen. Uh, the touchdowns could go on the ground. But if we want to paint a scenario in which Zach Wilson throws for three touchdowns, it's very easy to then extrapolate that into a scenario where this three-player block at this salary makes an enormous amount of sense. The next thing you'd want to do is also ask yourself, am I simplifying it by just throwing Christian McCaffrey on there? Or if Zach Wilson's throwing three touchdowns, are they, does this mean the Jets are playing from behind and he's having to pass a lot? Or does this mean that the Jets are playing with a lead and they're being aggressive? And that means the Panthers wide receiver is actually a better bet. Now, realistically, in this scenario, it probably means the Jets are trailing because we know the Jets want to be run-based. It would mean that the Jets are trailing and that's why they're passing the ball a lot. That's why Wilson's getting three touchdowns. And so Christian McCaffrey is the play there. Also, as we talked about already, if you're playing at like a three-player block like this that's low-owned, you don't have to worry about strategy on the rest of your roster. Like, it's great to still find, like, game environments you can bet on, but you don't have to... You can take Christian McCaffrey at whatever ownership. He could be 70% owned, and you could take him because you've differentiated enough already, especially in smaller field play. So uh, as you get into larger field, you'd want to try to uh, separate those plays a little bit and say, let me let me have some Corey Davis with Zach Wilson and no Elijah Moore, and vice versa. But in these smaller field tournaments, 10K and fewer entries, you can just take that player block, take the points. Like we talked about with, with the Texans 
three-player block earlier of Cooks and Fuller and Sean Watson. Take those points and be happy with what you get. Uh, super sharp question, and I think a super sharp way to approach that game. All right, Handsome Boy said, what is the easiest way to track what type of tourney slash cash games you are having success in so that you understand what is your strength? Is there a process to learn and be better with where your strengths are? Hold on one second. So, uh, Roto Maven might actually be. In fact, uh, Aaron, you want to jump in here real quickly because we looked at the we looked at trying to add something like this, and then Roto Grinders had a great tool for this for a long time, and then uh, I think they 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 took down that tool. They don't have it anymore. But Aaron, you found some place to track uh, entries and whatnot, right? Yeah. So there's Roto Tracker for one, but not somebody. Uh, a company that we're working with right now, but Jesse Freeland, um, who's on Discord here, is actually putting together a bankroll tracker that he put together last year and super helpful. And we're going to hopefully have that out for everybody here in the next few days. Um, so you can track everything for free. And it's basically just a download the CSV from a DraftKings and upload it into the Google Sheet. And it can show you how you've done in showdowns, how you've done in um, main slate. So it's a really valuable tool. Okay, that's awesome. That's awesome information to have. Um, and yeah, I've always been bad at tracking my play. Part of that's because for so long I was single entry. And even now, like the, the broadest I've really stretched into is 19 to 25 rosters at a time. And generally speaking, I'm still in like nine and fewer rosters. I think this year I'm going to focus primarily on on three entry max just to do something different kind of every year i've enjoyed doing something different because it's great for you guys for me to be able to talk through new processes and and hit on new play styles for whatever your play style is but um but yeah i mean it's super sharp to keep track of what you're good at and where you need to improve and also recognize that improvement isn't the most important thing profit is the most important thing so if you find a place where you have an edge hammer that edge tray to tray asked how do you take into account the total slash spread line movement in determining games and players to target? One of the most underutilized portions of OWS is the advanced odds tool. It's a very simple tool. It just shows visually the line movement in every game that week. Uh, in fact, I think it's the part of the site that Cubs fan uses more than any other part of the site. It's in the Edge Plus drop-down menu, and it says advanced odds tool. Uh, go there, and if you just click on the line history, you'll see visually the line movement on every game on the slate. So one of the things you want to be looking for is later in the week, games where the totals are moving up relatively quickly and by a large amount of points. So in fact, this week, uh, we highlighted in the NFL Edge, the Panthers-Jets game opened at 43 and it has risen to 45. So you keep an eye on that. Maybe by Sunday, it's up to 47, 48, because it was a game that, you know, when we were looking at it, it was like, this game has a much higher probability of shooting out than what this game total implies. So let's pay attention to this game, especially because the low game total might lead to it going overlooked. Uh, the key here is that Vegas lines are efficient over a large sample size, especially late week Vegas lines. So 
whatever the line is on a Sunday morning is going to be a good indicator of what the expectations for that game are. And if you can see a game that's moving from 43 up to 47 by the end of the week, that's an indication that this game is being seen from lots of sharp people from the uh, all of the pieces of information that can come in and sort of move the lines back and forth and all of the bets that are coming in, right? And so you have sharp people, you have the public, you have all this stuff. But over time, it's going to become a pretty efficient line by the end of the week. And so you can see, okay, this game has been moving up. And not only has it been moving up, but if, if it had been set higher, if it had been set at like 46, maybe we ended up with a 40 nine point total instead of 47. And so look for things like that. And, and I'll bring back the example I've used before, but when Cubs fan won the Millie maker, it was Texans at Seattle and nobody played offenses at Seattle in 2017 and before. And the Seattle Seahawks still had a pretty good defense. The line was moving up late in the week. And Cubs fan texted me and said, why is this line moving up? In fact, the NFL edge that week, the line was already relatively high. And I started out the game write up saying, I'm not sure why this total is as high as it is. Let's dig in and see if we can figure it out. We spent some time digging in. Nothing in the research pointed to that game being a shootout, but we made clear note of the fact that this total was high. It kept moving up deeper into the week. So rather than saying, why is it moving up? Cubs fan just said, okay, cool. Let me build around this game. People aren't thinking about this game. People don't want to play a a team in Seattle. Everyone's thinking about the negative scenario for this game. The scenario here too, that we're not figuring out what it is, but we know it's there because the line is moving up as we get closer and closer to kickoff. Just build heavily around that game and you get your first place finish. It's not as easy as that, but you know, I had a 12th place finish in the Millie Maker in 2004. 15, that was when there was 400,000 entries. I think it was 394,000 entries in the Millie Maker back then. I had a 12th place finish with just a handful of rosters entered from that Lions-Bears game that midweek, the total was like 45 or 46. I couldn't convince Levitan and Hefe on the Friday night show that it was a good game to target. By Sunday morning, the line was up to, I think, about 49 or so, but I'd already created my rosters at that point. But again, a game where there was late week line movement that showed, hey, this game has a better shot at shooting out than people are going to think. And so that's how we want to leverage line movement is just pay attention to those spots. And it doesn't mean that if a game is moving down, you just suddenly leave it alone. If there's a player from that game that you really like for whatever reason or whatever the case is, but we're wanting to recognize what we talked about at the top. Washington scored 41 points on Thanksgiving last year. Houston scored 41 points on Thanksgiving last year. Bet on those two offenses, you get over 200 points on your roster, even with some duds. So we're not just looking for teams that score 28 to 31 points. We're looking for teams that have potential to explode. That's where we really get those tournament winning scores. And so those that line movement is just another indicator that, hey, here's a game where there might be some players who could explode. Keep in mind, if that's going on with a concentrated offense, that's more valuable than an offense like the Bucks, where 10 different guys are going to touch the ball every week. So there's a lot to think about, but that's what we're paying attention to with line movement. Uh, Eagles 1985 asked, how would you approach a Thursday through Monday slate on a single entry build? No different than I would approach the main slate. You know, you you recognize that there's going to be people who put in 
more Thursday night players, right? Like maybe five, 6% of rosters are heavier on Thursday night than they would be if that game were on the main slate. So you take that into account a little bit, but other than that, you're still thinking about first place. You're thinking about how you put your roster together instead of just what players you're taking and what that's doing to maximize your chances of that first place finish. Fawns 87 asked, how do you approach players coming back to a slate off of an injury? This is similar to, we could get more nuanced here, right? Like lower body injuries or likelier to slow things, slow a player down or somebody who's got a hamstring or, you know, what is the coach saying about easing this guy back in? But ultimately, like big picture, this is the same as like a rookie playing in their first game. I use this example somewhere, but last year, Zandamir and I were both having a conversation with someone on Discord where Brandon Ayuk, his first game, he was 4,200 and we were talking about what type of player he is and saying, okay, he's like, he's a speed guy. The 49ers drafted him specifically for this idea that they want to create yards after the catch opportunities. And they think that Brandon Ayuk's a perfect fit for what they're wanting to do here. And the person we're talking to said, yeah, but like, we don't know how he fits on an NFL field. Like we don't know if this is going to play out on an NFL field. And what Zandemir said was, yeah, but as soon as we do know that it's too late to play him. Now he's, 20% now his price is going up and he's 15, 20% owned. So same thing as that. Like it's a spot where if everybody's shying away from a player, if everybody's thinking the negative scenario about a player or the wait and see scenario, well, let's wait and see if this guy's healthy. And if Levitan's talking about, well, we don't want to play this guy this week because of these reasons. Well, he's talking about cash games and that's a super sharp take. Yeah, there's no reason to take on that risk. But that thinking bleeds over into the way the public is going to approach that tournament week and everybody's going to say, well, yeah, let's take a wait and see approach on him. So for me, like, look, if a guy's coming back from injury and everybody's playing him and I say, well, he's going to be 25% owned. Sure. He's in a good spot. Sure. He could hit, but he's not going to hit for a tournament winning score 25 times out of a hundred in this spot. And there's a little bit of injury risk. Then yeah, like I'll fade that guy. But if it's, Hey, this guy, you know, if he were fully healthy, he would be 25% owned, but he's sitting here at 3% ownership or 5% ownership or you know 1% ownership because people are just totally not even thinking about him because it's his first game as a rookie or because it's his first game back from injury. That's where we say, okay, well, like let me embrace a little bit of uncertainty there, especially if this guy has slate-breaking potential. Look, if you're just taking on a low-owned guy coming back from injury because he's low-owned, that's not going to help you in a tournament. But if it's a guy who legitimately could blow past his score, his price considered score that you're looking for, and he's low owned, and you think that in this spot as a healthy play, he would be much higher owned, then embrace that variance. Who, who cares if he only plays one and a half quarters and aggravates the injury? If you run out that scenario a hundred times, if you make that decision every time, it's massively plus EV. So who cares what happens on the small sample size of one week? All you're worried about is, is this the most profitable decision over time? So there's a lot that goes into that situation, but that's sort of a, a, a breakdown of how I would put it all together. If we had infinite time, I would sort of repeat all of that and say it all in a different way, but this is all going to be archived for you as well. So feel free to go back and re-listen to that if you didn't catch sort of all the layers of how I would approach something like that. Steelers JT said, JM, let's say you had a plus EV off season and grind out a bunch of $100 Millie maker tickets in other sports. 
what kind of special roster considerations should we keep in mind when we know the high dollar buy-in weeds out some of the weaker competition? So you got a bunch of tickets for the $100 Millimaker. So you know that you're not playing against all those dead $20 single bullets that are just taking the quote best plays on the slate. You're, you're just playing against people who either won tickets, which means they were pretty sharp, or they're spending a bunch on a $100 Millimaker. That's the third pause for me to close my office door. Uh, William's very interested in inner circle. Uh, I should charge him for it. Um, okay, so the way that I see this is it's weeding out the weaker players, but it's not weeding out the stronger players. So I don't know what the tournament field is, but just sort of extrapolating the, the typical size and then you know 5x the, the buy-in level, let's say it's one-fifth the tournament size. So instead of having to beat 200,000 entries, you have to beat 40 or 50,000 entries. Well, if I have to beat 40 or 50,000 entries, I'm pretty much building the same way I would if I had to beat 200,000 entries. Beating 50,000 entries is a lot of entries to have to beat. And somebody's going to have some sort of crazy roster that that the Cubs fan, Seattle versus Houston, and don't even play DeAndre Hopkins and Doug Baldwin, but just bet on Tyler Lockett and Paul Richardson and Will Fuller on 20 different rosters. Like somebody's going to have that type of roster because you're you're weeding out the weaker players and still playing against the sharper players. And the Millie Maker is so top heavy that cashing, you don't care. Like that's one of the tough things about winning tickets is you can get to a point where you're like, yeah, but this is now, this is tickets, which isn't money. If I cash a bunch of these, that's actual money in my pocket. Right. But, but you weren't playing those qualifiers and picking up those tickets so that you could turn them into 500 or a thousand bucks from men cashing a bunch of rosters. You were getting those tickets to give yourself this swing at first place. And you still have to beat all the sharp players who are still building the same types of rosters they would be building in a 200,000 entry field. And so you still have to build the same way you would for the $20 millimaker. You have to assume that there are fewer dead rosters, but just the same number of good players and sharp rosters. And so that's how I would approach that situation. Ricky Sabogal, (laughs) Uh, Wentz and his tight ends. With his familiarity with his OC from Philly and how often he targeted tight ends when they were together, do you feel he could target Cox and Doyle for quick passes? Yeah, uh, Frank Reich loves tight ends. That's like a fundamental part of his offense. Um, You still have to think about, is this guy getting me a tournament-worthy score? And you have to think about... You have to think about the fact that, look, you don't have to differentiate at every spot. You should start... You should start your tight end decision-making this week, week one, by saying Kyle Pitts is 4.4K on DraftKings. So if Kyle Pitts is the player that the public is expecting him to be, that means that we expect him to be 6K to 6,500 to maybe even 7K later in the season, and he's 4,400. Doesn't mean he's going to hit. Similar to when we had Deontay Johnson at 4,200 that week when I said, look, Deontay Johnson, he's going to be under 5% owned because nobody's paying attention to him. And he's the sharpest play on this slate. 
even if he fails this week, he's the sharpest play on this slate. Now, we don't have enough information on Kyle Pitts to say that. So I'm not saying that, but I'm saying you have to understand that this is a really sharp play. This is a guy who is almost certainly underpriced. And so if Kyle Pitts even hits like a lower end of his range, let's let's pretend he's 6,500 and then say what type of score we're looking for. Well, if he gets 12 points, how much are you saving on going to Mo Alley Cox or Jack Doyle? And what are the chances that one of them passes 12 points? You know, and so, and then you think, well, if Kyle Pitts hits, if he gets 20 points, if he gets 25 points and I'm taking an excellent game from Jack Doyle and getting 10 points. Well, I'm way behind the field. I'm taking an excellent game from Mo Ali Cox, who may have the role we want him to have and may not. And he gets Mo Ali Cox. Mo Ali Cox is pretty athletic. Let's give him 15 points. Everything comes together, 15 points. You're still way behind the 30% of the field. That I'm pulling that number out of thin air, but I'm assuming that's where, where Kyle Pitts will be this week. Uh, you're still behind the 30% of the field. They got Kyle Pitts at super at a super low price, and you didn't save that much salary. He got he got them 25 points. You got 15, and so we don't want to overthink things. We want to. Uh, Mike dives into this in his checking the boxes course. In in it's in the roster construction bundle and it's in uh, marketplace as a solo course. And actually we made his courses 29 bucks. I'm not trying to get extra money out of you, um, but we made his courses 29 bucks instead of 39 since he's new. And there's the kickoff code that saves 20%. Oh, you guys are in our circle. So there's the, you guys always have 30% off. So it's 20 bucks for the checking the boxes course. But one of the things that he talks about is like you, you, he goes through like five of his big wins from the last few years and the players who were on those rosters and breaks down like this guy was a first round pick. This guy was a first round pick. This guy was a highly touted second round pick. This guy was a fourth round pick, but he dropped in the draft because of off field concerns. And this guy's an athletic freak. Like he went through all of his tournament winning rosters and it's like, here's an excellent player. Here's an excellent player. Here's an excellent player across the board on all these rosters. So we want to be thinking about that too, like being different. I'll say it like this. That's an incredibly sharp way to look at the Colts offense. I drafted a little bit of Mo Alley Cox late in best ball drafts thinking, okay, nobody's drafting Mo Alley Cox. So if they end up using him, if this becomes a thing, but it's not going to become, they're not going to be Wentz and Ertz and Ertz and Goddard. Hertz and Goddard wasn't just a function of the offense they were running. They're also a function of being really good players. And so we don't want to just say like, oh, I uncovered this really sharp thought. So now I'm going to play it. We have to then also say, okay, and does this thought make sense this week? Uh, in the setup of this week, like how much risk am I taking on? How much guesswork am I taking on? You can build pretty bulletproof rosters, rosters with a lot less guesswork by thinking through all these things, demystifying the slate for yourself, thinking through how these players get their points, thinking about how likely it is. And so then you say, well, this was a sharp thought, but it probably doesn't help me win a tournament this week because their high-end score, barring like some impossible to, to predict outlier, their high-end score is going to be in that 10 to 15 point range. And it's week one, there's cheap players. There's Marquez Calloway, who's in number one alpha at 3,400. There's Elijah Moore at 3K. There's Paris Campbell, who nobody's going to own except for me, at 3,700. There's Kyle Pitts at 4,400. Like, you got to ask, 
am I maximizing this salary on this week? Am I giving myself a shot at the first place finish on this? And if the it's, it's hard to uncover something like that and then be like, okay, and I'm not going to play it. Um, but you have to be willing to do that as well as say, like, does that fit on this week? Is that helping me get to first place? And then if the answer is no, then the answer is no. Uh, those are the questions that came in throughout the day today. Let's spend, uh, I think we can squeeze about 25 more minutes, go till uh, a quarter to nine East Coast, quarter to six West Coast, and uh, answer some questions. So Aaron, let's get you in here and you can kind of um, direct how we want to do this and we'll get some some Q&A going. Perfect. If anybody wants to ask a question, you can type it into the Inner Circle text channel or... Uh... Raise your hand and you can come right up on stage and ask uh, JM directly. And we have one right now from Outlaw Raider, and I'm going to bring you up on stage right now. Outlaw Raider, what's up, man? All right. Uh, so first of all, really appreciate all the insights, uh, all the, the 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 focus on roster construction um, has been really, really fantastic. But I want to shift gears just a little bit and talk a little bit on tournament selection. We know that that's a, a really key piece of of being successful at dfs generally speaking when when you're looking at at managing your bankroll for a week is it better to try to concentrate your buy-ins to a smaller number of tournaments at a higher buy-in where there's a lower rake uh, or would you enter more tournaments at uh, lower entry fees so you're paying a higher rake but you may be able to spread uh, between multiple different size fields and different payout structures your thoughts on that so stay if, if you can't stay on here in case i want to ask you anything else on on this or have you re- repeat any of that but the the first thing i want to say is i wouldn't recommend changing approach from week to week so let's start there like Identify what, like I said earlier, like I'll probably do three entry max this year. And that doesn't mean that I'll stick to that all 18 weeks, but I'm going to start out the season, like at least the first six, seven weeks with that approach. And that allows me to say, like, to let, let the numbers play out, make sure that I'm doing things correctly. Um, So from a starting point, I would say like, decide what you want to do. And then next kind of decide personality wise, what's better for you. Cause like, let's say you're saying, all right, I'm going to put uh 200 bucks in, or let's say you're going to put, you said a higher, higher dollar, like smaller field tournaments. So let's say you're going to put a thousand bucks in and you have a choice between the thousand dollar single entry contest or spreading out that thousand dollars across like 50 rosters on a different contest size. Right. So there, in fact, that's a great example because uh, Hilo and Zandemir both talked about the after the Millie Maker fills, DraftKings puts up another tournament that the Sharks don't enter and that you basically have the Sunday morning crowd, the people who build their rosters on Sunday morning, they're the ones who are entering that. So it's a softer field. And you could say, look, I'm going to put 50 rosters into this at 20 bucks a pop. There's my there's my $1,000 right there. Um, to me, it's like a personality thing. So like I played almost exclusively the the 1k to 2k buy-in tournaments 
with one roster for like my first three years of NFL DFS because one, it was great that I was playing against the same people every week. So I could flip through the standings, get a sense. I wasn't trying to study like individual rosters. What's this person going to do this week? What's this person going to do? But just get a sense of like, okay, what am I competing against every week? How are these guys thinking? And accumulated knowledge over time, you process how these guys are seeing things. And then you say, okay, so here's how I can outmaneuver them this week. Here's how I can outmaneuver them this week. And, you know, I had a stretch in there where I cashed in that tournament. I think it was 10 out of 17 weeks and, you know, had several top three finishes along the way. Um, had a week where I finished uh, one year. I had a week where I finished first, second, third, and fourth, where I just double entered two rosters. And I had that level of confidence to say, uh, I'm only putting in two rosters in this tournament this week, but I like these two rosters this much for the field I'm competing against that I'm going to double enter both of them and hope I take down first and second with one and third and fourth with the other. And so for me, for my personality, like Blender asked me earlier today why I have like these random number of rosters, like 17 or 19. And he said, they're all prime numbers. And uh, the truth, the actual truth of it is it's nothing about like strategy or something I would recommend or whatever. It's literally just that I like feeling fortressed. Some of you might remember when I bought a new sleeping bag a few years ago, because I would literally sometimes sit in my sleeping bag to like type the NFL edge. Like I like feeling comfortable and fortressed. So for me, it's harder for my personality to stretch into like, the Cubs fan thinking of I'm going to build 30 rosters around this game that we don't know why we like it. And I'm not going to take DeAndre Hopkins or Doug Baldwin. I'm going to take Paul Richardson and Tyler Lockett and, and Will Fuller. Like that's not my strength. And so I don't focus on those tournaments. So I guess I would throw it back to you and say, what are your strengths? Right. And like, what actually makes the most sense for your approach? Okay. That, 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 that makes sense. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, for, for me personally, I've, I've historically just kind of concentrated at the, the, the lower stakes and, and trying multiple different tournaments. Um, so, but again, what, as far as, you know, we're starting a brand new um, kind of changing approach to, to, to see at the, at the start of the season, would it be a better move to try to, to, shift gears with uh with a fresh start speaking of like those higher dollar smaller field tournaments there is an edge to playing that like you're playing in sharper players but also ownership concentrates more on the higher owned players so like a guy who's 25 percent owned in the millie might be 50 percent owned in a high dollar tournament so there's certainly advantages to those tournaments like lower rake and sure sharper field of players but it the strategy almost becomes easier in some ways uh, once you get into that groove. So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like, oh yeah, don't jump up to the higher buy-ins. I just say, find what works the best for you and sort of build around that. That makes sense. Thank you very much. All right, Aaron. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for the question. Uh, Aaron, what do we have next? We got somebody else up? Raven68 is next. I'm going to bring him on and then I'm going to jump off and move him into uh, the room with you here. So I'm going to jump off. What's up, man? Hey, guys. Good evening, everyone. How you doing? Um, hey, you know, so I've been with you for a few years. Last year, I kind of was – this kind of dovetails in with what you were just talking about, actually, with the number of rosters. Last year, I really worked for a lot of the season on the concept of roster blocks, building a block of rosters that sort of try and mesh and work together. Um, 
and I, I think I've started to get the concept. My question is, I find I play mostly singles, three matches, and up to 20 max tournaments. I usually don't do the large mass multi-entry tournaments yet. Um, but my question for you is, when you're building, for example, for a 20 max tournament, a block of rosters, how do you choose the number you do? I know sometimes you'll have 14, 7. I know you've said in the past you like those, but it's just sometimes the number. But if you're going to enter a 20 max, would you recommend going all 20? Or sometimes, you know, I find myself putting the same two or three guys in. It ends up maybe getting me too much exposure to them. Is that when it's time to stop? I'm just kind of wondering your thoughts on that. Because that's one thing I do struggle with, you know, when I'm trying to put these roster blocks together, is how many make up a, like a solid, aggressive block. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So what I would do, and I'm – I can like talk through my thoughts on this while also saying like, look, I've spent most of my DFS quote career playing, you know, one to three three or five lineups. Um, And we had that stretch where I was wanting to see what, you know, how I would approach trying to take down the wildcat and was building those roster blocks. And what I would do was I would start with 14 as my foundation of like, okay, I'm going to build 14 rosters, but I had flexibility to go up as high as like 26. And so most weeks I had 14, 17 or 19. And those, that was just based on like numbers that I like, but it was like, okay, 14 is my starting point. And maybe I find, and, and another thing that I would do is like, if I was doing 17 rosters, I would have 12 that were, sort of built one way and five that were built another way, either like directly leveraging those first 12 or like saying, okay, here's like a different approach I'm seeing. So I kind of forced myself to take instead of like 14 rosters that were all built around one thing. It was like, let me separate into like different categories of how I'm constructing these rosters. And that allowed me to then, if I'm like finding a couple extra things that I want to do, like maybe it's like, okay, I want, um, Dalvin Cook on seven rosters and I want Thielen on five and I want Jefferson on four and then I want Thielen and Jefferson to overlap on at least two of these and then that that leaves me with like a spot where I'm like okay well that's taking up a lot of my rosters and I still want to try a few other things then I can say okay and I'll build in I'll go up to 19 rosters this week I'll go up to 26 rosters this week and build a couple additional ones in other ways so, yeah, I mean, if you're going 20 max, I wouldn't say there's like a hard and fast rule that you have to do all 20 so much as like kind of just say, well, I'm going to again, consistency week to week can help quite a bit. And the more you can get your feet under you of saying, OK, this is my approach and this is how I'm going to structure my week toward that approach toward a first place finish that allows you to kind of home in on what you're doing like and and where your strengths and weaknesses are in that approach and then it can be like okay my plan is 20 rosters but that's fluid maybe some weeks it ends up being 15 16 17 because these last these last three rosters are kind of redundant or i'm just kind of taking bad plays to fill out my last few rosters um or you know other weeks you use all 20 and some weeks you divide it up as like a a 12 4 4 in terms of approaches and other weeks you it's like might be a 7 6 6 you know it's like so just yeah be willing or 7 6 7 be willing to kind of have your starting point and then have some fluidity within that if that makes sense no totally it makes total sense thank you appreciate it yeah 100 so uh help miha is coming in next 
So let's see if we did that right. Hey, look at me. There we go. Hello. What's up? Hey, how's it going? It's going well, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So I have a real quick question. So I do mainly single entry and three max. And one of the things I've always struggled with is, do you make like four unique lineups, meaning you make one for your single entry and then like three completely uniques in your three max entry? Or are there overlapping players like in your three max entry? Like how are you trying to, I guess, construct three, three entries? So first off, Hilo plays his three and one as a three and one. So he has three rosters that are in his three entry max. I, I believe this. this is, he said this in a recent write-up. Uh, three lineups that are in a three entry max and then a separate fourth roster that's in single entry, basically saying like, well, I'm building differently for these single entry rosters than, than I am for these three entry maxes. Um, I think that's super sharp. It can also, I mean, it can work just as well to say, okay, here's my three entry max block and i'm going to take one roster from this and put it into a uh, single entry tournament like i like this is my favorite from this group and I'm, I'm going to put it in single entry tournaments um the kind of the second layer there to what what you were asking about was also like overlapping players across the roster so what i'm wanting to do we used the example earlier of like the vikings and how we could say i want to bet on this vikings offense and this game against the Bengals and do it three different ways you can also i typically find myself with like and again, I have a single entry player background. So if I'm building three rosters, even seven rosters, nine, 15, whatever, I typically have some players that I just treat as my all-in bets. So three, three entry max, I might have like one offense that I'm betting on in all the rosters, but betting on it in different ways. Another two or three players that are on all three rosters and then, you know, mix and match. Maybe this stack goes on two rosters and then on the third roster, I do something differently, or maybe this stack goes on two rosters and then on, on the third roster, I say, okay, if that stack fails, then what is succeeding in that game? And so, yeah, there's going to be some overlap in terms of player and player pool and, and stuff, but I wouldn't recommend just three totally independent rosters because optimally you're finding something you're wanting to bet on and then you're maximizing the different little angles you can take on betting on that in that three entry max structure got it got it oh, yeah. and i and i and I, and that was what i was going to ask you i was I, that that uh thing i think you brought that example up early with the jets where you like take the quarterback and either one of the two wide receivers and one wide receiver on one lineup and two wide receivers in another and another one on the third to kind of get your to kind of get your exposure to that offense. Yeah, and as you get to those larger field tournaments, again, it's like the the more you have to say, okay, I'm not just taking all three on one and being happy with the points from the salary, but I have to try to isolate which ones actually pop off in, in that specific spot. Uh, so we are out of anyone with their hand raised. If anyone else has a question, throw that hand up. Jay, if you don't mind, yeah, let me jump in here. We actually have uh, two more questions, and we'll we'll call it a night. Um, but they're both in your private messages there. Um, if you want to take a look there. All right, we got we got William in the background drinking out of a fake cup. Um, all right, I just got this opened up again. Let me refresh this page. 
Aaron, feel free to, oh, never mind. I got to load it up. All right. So when it comes to the larger field, 150 max, how many games are you focusing on a, on a big slate like Sunday? Love the mix and matching the game environment in multiple different ways, but also don't want to be all in on two game environments only. Yeah. I mean, I would let the slate dictate that for me because there's also a case to be made for like, treating 150 max like you're a single entry player and saying here's two games that i actually think are far superior than anything else and so i'm going to mix and match really heavily on like all of my rosters if i'm wrong i'm wrong but on the weeks when i'm right i'm going to have 150 rosters that are banging on the door of first place like that massively maximizes your chances but if there's another week where there's four or five games that you're all kind of valuing equally then, or maybe there's two that are at the top and you, you go 50 rosters and 50 rosters, 30 rosters, 30 rosters, and then kind of break things down from there and what else you're betting on. Um, it's important to not get too boxed into one approach or the other versus that, like know how many lineups you're going to put in. So you know what you're looking for, but from there you can say, Hey, I want to bet on the best game environments because it's fine. Your bankroll, if you're going to go 150 lineups, your bankroll has to be able to support a week in which none of them cash because you have to sometimes be willing to build in such a way that there's potential for none of them to cash. Cause that also creates the potential for maximum opportunities for that first place finish. If what you're betting on heavily hits. So yeah, I would take it one sort of one slate at a time and let the slate dictate what I'm doing. You don't want to expand to five or six games just because you don't want to be so concentrated. If you're forcing those last few games so again uh letting the slate sort of decide that is super important last question and what a way to end it from noel fan one of the sharpest sharpest sharps in dfs in small fields is it better to favor a brink in a stack or a more condensed offense from another game so to me it's all about how i can describe that bring back I think a lot of times we see so many three, one rosters or two, one rosters, you know, the stack plus a bring back from the other side, the three man stack plus a bring back from the other side that just sort of blindly stacking. And uh, I think in fact, uh, Noel, this is something you and I talked about last year was these like bulletproof rosters and just being able to build really great rosters that don't take on that much risk. And so a lot of times we see people just sort of saying, oh, here's the rule. It, it wins more often to bring back a stack where it might be a game where you have a spread out offense on the other side and you don't really even know who to bring it back with. And you're just guessing. You have say a 10% chance of guessing right, even if the game flow goes the way you want it to go. Uh, whereas on a condensed offense, you've probably got a let's say the the Vikings or the Titans, you know, you've got a 35 to 40% chance of guessing right because because there are going to be scenarios where Derrick Henry and A.J. Brown both hit or where Dalvin Cook and Justin Jefferson both hit. And so, you know, it's not just a 33% chance of guessing right. you got a 35 to 40% chance of getting the right guy. So for me, I never force a bring back. And it's not uncommon for me to have a stack one side of the game and not have a bring back from the other. I think that's important for me to say. So I'm glad that question came up because that's important for you guys to keep in mind. You don't always have to bring it back. You want to bring it back when you can say, okay, in this game scenario, like we were able to describe the Jamar Chase thing earlier. If you can describe it and it makes sense, that's when you bring it back. Uh, otherwise, I think betting on a concentrated offense, and I think Noel, you would probably echo this sentiment, betting on a concentrated offense 
um, is is a lot of how you've made so much money in in high dollar tournaments, smaller high dollar smaller field tournaments. Um, and I think that's a, always a sharp way to close out a roster is bet on concentrated offenses. So uh, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, I'm excited to do some more of these. I'm actually going to record a bonus. Uh, audio note tomorrow. We won't be doing it on stage. It won't be live, but um, you'll be able to find this on the Inner Circle page and also that on the Inner Circle page uh, by the end of day tomorrow. And with that, I am out of here. William is out of here. Uh, We will see you on the site and I'll see you at the top of the leaderboards this week. I'll see you on Inner Circle throughout the week as well and and hopefully in Discord as well. Uh, Talk to you guys later.